Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. We just live right now, man. It's going down, excited for the season. You know, we coming off a playoff win. I mean, you know, we had a couple wins. You're in a lot of trouble, and maybe it's because... Well, sorry, Canada. Ah, in Toronto. And because Philly sucks. I feel like I fear Boston most of all out of any of the Eastern Conference teams. Nah. Yeah. Okay. Hello, and welcome to the Brew Hoop Podcast. I'm Adam Paris, co-managing editor of BrewHoop.com, joined, as per usual, but for the first time in a while, by Riley Feldman and Kyle Carr. It's been a while since we were all together, guys. We're recording after the the thrill of Game 4 in the Bucks Heat playoff series that had reached its Probably it's Nadir when we were down, the Bucks were down 3-0, and it was a tough start to the Labor Day weekend, but at least we got a victory under our belts, didn't get swept. But uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty, how are you, fellas? Doing okay. I've been uh, busy away moving from place to place. Sorry, everybody, if I sound a little echoey. I've just, this is the first recording in my new office, and so i got to figure out the uh, the sound effects and everything. But I'm doing okay, I think, Uh mixed feelings on avoiding getting swept, whether or not that just delays the inevitable for another 48 hours or what, but uh, we'll get into that. But otherwise I'm doing okay. Yeah. It, it's a good thing we're recording now after game four win compared to after game four loss, because I would have set everything on fire. Um, otherwise things are fine. Robin Voss, Scott Fitzgerald and Jim Steineke are bitch ass cowards. And that's all I got. Can't think of a – it's a great statement, great way to start. There was also chatter of, of potentially a, a late-night recording after Game 3. I think for the benefit of humankind, it's good that we didn't. Um, just based on some of the chats we were having uh, and the, the state of mind I was in. But uh, let's get into this. Let's get into this series, guys. So we're going to start looking at Game 4. Really interesting game, just given the way the series has gone up to this point. Giannis – uh, is sort of wreaking havoc for the first, for the 11 minutes that he's in the game. He scores 19 points in just 11 minutes, leaves with a right ankle sprain. Obviously, he was questionable going into the game and then seems to be, goes to the ground, is grimacing in, in more pain than I can remember him really being in a long time. We've seen him turn his ankle a lot, but he always seems to be able to come back from that. This game, he obviously did not return. The Bucks still managed to pull it out in overtime, 118-115, behind a, a massive Chris Middleton performance, 47 minutes, 36 points, 12 of 28 shooting, hits the, the dagger three in overtime to put them ahead and, and keep them ahead, extend the cushion. 
And obviously we have a few other players extending their minutes. Lopez at 41 minutes. Uh, Bledsoe was up around 39 minutes. So I guess just first impressions, given how the series had gone up to that point, what was your first initial takeaway, Kyle, after the Bucks were able to pull this one out? It was interesting because Milwaukee got off to a slow start in game four, and you're thinking, this is going to be a long afternoon. This is this is not going to end well, just because in all the other games, Milwaukee at either held even with Miami Heat or jumped off to a fast start. So when they were behind, it was just like, uh, yeah, we're getting swept, aren't we? And then Giannis is, again, wreaking havoc, and you're thinking, Giannis is going to go out swinging at the very least because no one else at that point was really doing anything. I think in the first quarter, Milwaukee scored 22 points and Giannis had 14 of them. Um, so just kind of outline the dominance. He was the only one that hit a three in the first quarter. So we figured this was going to be a Giannis is going to score 40, maybe even 50 points, but Milwaukee loses at the rate it's going. And then Giannis goes down and you're thinking, okay, well, this really seems bad. And yeah, this was the worst I think we've seen Giannis because Normally, he's at least able to put pressure on his ankle and walk it off and maybe just like he needs like a couple minutes, but he's at least able to put pressure on it. But this time he just couldn't um, give him props for shooting the free throws. But and I think that was kind of a in case it's not as bad as he initially thought he could still come back in, which was smart. Um, but unfortunately, he didn't come back. Milwaukee, though, right before halftime, they went on a run and kept things competitive. And it it was one of those where I was thinking, they're going to keep things competitive. It's good to see, but when is Miami going to make that run? When is Miami going to pull away from the pack? When is Miami going to pretty much put us out of our misery? And it just never happened and never happened and never happened. And you start getting the feeling like, okay, maybe Milwaukee squeaks out a win and then you get to the last final minutes and... Bucks are down one, and Dante gets to the line, and you're thinking, okay, Dante hits both free throws. You win. Cool. He misses the first. I'm thinking, huh, crap. Even if he makes the second one, which he does, I'm thinking, Miami's going to hit a game winner. Just because of how the series has been, Miami's going to hit the game winner. It's going to be awful. And then they didn't, and Milwaukee got into overtime, and Chris Middleton was fantastic. I think out of all the times Chris Middleton had to step up, this was the game, and I think he felt more empowered and took more shots that he probably wouldn't have with Giannis on the floor. I think it didn't necessarily open things up, but it allowed Bledsoe when he wasn't taking dumb threes, uh, able to dribble penetrate. Brooke Lopez was getting to the block. You know, Dante DiVincenzo played well in Giannis's absence. He had played well in game three as well. So at least you had players stepping up. And I think that was the biggest thing is all of these guys stepped up in a way that for most of them has not been shown the whole series. And this is something that we can touch on later, but funny what happens when you play your best players more minutes. That was about my takeaway too. So like, <laughs> what what's the key difference between game four and all the other games is like the starters have to play a lot of heavy minutes and actually utilize their talents. I mean, I, I think we all agree. I think everybody else agrees that even though there were aspects of Milwaukee's roster that were deep, the best players, it was still like a pretty top heavy-ish roster, which is fine. I mean, like your top four guys are all pretty good. They do well in their roles. And, you know, it's unfortunate that Giannis goes down, but he has such a nice start to the game that that kind of helps propel them, kind of props them up. And then you ride Chris, who we've been hoping for. And, and all credit to Chris all series long. He's had a really good series, like on both ends of the floor. So he's been very consistent. 
Um, Eric, you kind of give a little bit of a pass just because he was dealing with a hamstring. He couldn't play in game one. So like game two and three, if he's kind of working back into it, that's fine. Um, Brooke has also been good this series. So it's like, what's the key difference? Those guys play to the like maximum amount of minutes that you could hope for. They all tally more than 40 minutes. Wes Matthews, we can kind of get into that. He only gets 25 minutes, but that's, I mean, it's kind of Bud's approach there has been strange all series. So I'm not sure what to make of that. And then like Kyle said, I mean, the other big thing was like, the ability to have George Hill, who has a good game, and then Dante, who helps shore up the guard rotation, where it's just like, I worry about constantly having to like, okay, George Hill is going to be the guy that bails us out because, I mean, it, George Hill in the bubble was not like the magic George Hill of last playoffs. He wasn't the magic George Hill of the entire season. It was unrealistic to expect him to keep shooting 50% from three, but it just didn't seem like he had it to the same extent as last year, which is fine because he's a year older. But then to have a guy like Dante who all season long, we're like, well, this would be, if he's going to be like this in the playoffs or even like a facsimile of it, that's going to make things so much easier for the rotation. And so shout out to him for stemming up. And I, I think whether or not it's realistic to expect Bud to continue to now from here on out, go to his starters 40 plus minutes. I don't know. It would be great if he did, I think, because that's what they're there for. But um, if, if we're going to take away one thing, that's the biggest thing. It's kind of obvious. It's kind of painful that it took this long for it, the most obvious move to be the go-to, but at least it happened, I guess, is kind of the takeaway. Yeah, and I, I also wonder if Milwaukee squeaks by game two and the series is either 3-1 or 2-2 how much of the issues that were glaring are there. And that's something we can obviously talk about later, but that's something that was in the back of my mind as you were talking, Riley, about like players stepping up and it's like, well, if game two had gone differently, maybe things aren't as doom and gloom as we've seen. But yeah, I think the weirdest part is West still not play that much, even with Giannis being out and overtime. Um, I don't know what's going on with that, but yeah, I think everything that Riley said was spot on though. Now, I do think one interesting part of the West West Matthews being out, and I, I obviously we all know earlier in the series he wasn't playing late in the fourth quarters during the two times that Jimmy Butler essentially sealed the deal, which it seems like a pretty pretty clear indictment of Bud in that respect. In that you're getting roasted by the guy, and you're not putting in one of his primary defenders. Which, you know, whatever we could we could talk about that later if we want. But the but the thing that they did find in this last game was they were putting they were putting Eric Bledsoe on him late. Which, um, I, and I think is a reasonable thing to have happen because one of the things I like about that a little bit is I do think Eric Bledsoe, Wes Matthews is great at getting around screens too, but Eric Bledsoe is someone who's physical enough and can maybe disrupt Jimmy is a little shorter, maybe disrupt Jimmy's dribble a little bit because that's really been, that's Jimmy Butler's MO is he's going to try and drive to the basket and propel himself down. And I, I do think the one thing that they did find was they had those three guards, George Hill, Eric Bledsoe, and Dante DiVincenzo, actually working really, really well in rhythm. They were offering the kind of type of perimeter defense that we sort of imagined when we thought of those players all year. That was like, if that was going to be like our three-guard lineup, you could imagine that lineup with Chris and Giannis. If you wanted to go small, it was working pretty well with Chris and Lopez. So I, I do think that could be something interesting that Bud could go to in future games. It seemed to work in this one, but it did exclusively seem to work because Dante DiVincenzo stopped playing like an absolute, you know, zero for like he's been for most of the playoffs. And that's really been 
that that was something that made it viable because essentially Bud was then swapping in either Matthews or DiVincenzo kind of late in, in overtime and just relying on the team to go from there. Yeah. I think the other thing that was notable in game four, though, is like, even though they edged out the win, which we're all thankful for, and I think there were some good signs that, I mean, it kind of depends on Budenholzer whether or not he goes for it, but there were still a lot of, and we can kind of get into the negatives. There's a lot of negatives about the series, but there's still a lot of moments where like, even though you had the right personnel out there, like the defense just still seems really out of sorts for whatever reason. We can kind of get into that a little bit wider, but like there were multiple possessions, especially in the first quarter where I was like, why is Brooke Lopez like deciding to help off of like Jay Crowder or whoever from, for, from three? Like if, if you're out there, you're on a weird assignment, like that is what it is. But then like he would randomly, like defenders would randomly collapse on Jimmy Butler to help Wes Matthews out. And it's like, okay, well, Jimmy's going to be able to obviously find his way out of that. And so it was good to see. And, and this is like the eternal debate. This playoffs is like, is the issue the offense or is it the defense? And I think we saw yesterday that you can, if you empower a guy like Chris, who has is a good shot creator, he's the best shot creator on the roster, you can ride that to a certain extent. And then defensively, there were still moments where I was like, I don't know what we're doing. Like, I don't know how we're a month plus into the bubble and we're still doing this overhelp, like everybody's collapsing when that's just not the scheme. And so that's that was the other thing, like, especially early on, like Kyle said, they got Miami got off to such a huge lead. It's like, well, if the defense is going to suck again, it's not going to really matter. Like you can, and the other thing is like, do you want to just let Jimmy beat you and try and like just wall up everybody else? Like do the opposite of Giannis. Like it's just, there were a lot of questions and I'm not sure if yesterday really answered that, even though offensively they were able to work it out enough and get enough help from the bench to be able to make it a non-issue, but it's something to keep an eye on game five and beyond seeing how it goes ahead. Yeah. And I think offensively you kind of was for, you're forced to do it once Giannis left. Because I think had Giannis stayed healthy, they would have just, Giannis would have continued just wreaking havoc and just sticking to the paint. And I think I'm still more concerned offensively just because defensively you can make either switches, whether you decide to switch everything or it really does depend on what you do with the pick and roll. If you're deciding to drop scheme and let guys fight through screens, that's fine. For some players, that's probably not the best option. But you know what? If that's your defensive scheme that you want to go with, that's your defensive scheme. Because you're just hoping that with Milwaukee's system that you try and close off the paint, which they've done a better job in in the last two games and then games one and two, but you're letting people shoot. And, you know, sometimes you have a Jay Crowder who's going to hit a lot of threes. On the opposite, Jay Crowder next game might only go two of ten, or you force Andre Iguodala for taking those shots, or you settle with Kelly Olenek taking those threes, or even a Bam Adebayo, like, mid-range shot. Like, you live with guys taking the shot selection that Miami's taken. I think that's what Miami has done really well, is not take dumb shots. If you don't over... And I don't know how much of that you can really fix at this point. You know, the defense is the defense, and a well-coached team is going to beat that. But on offense, it's kind of a... You don't have... You everyone you knew Giannis was going to get walled off and all these things. So how do you counter that? Then you need to have guys hit their shots. But the problem is you can't have okay shooters taking a bunch of shots unless they're wide open. And, you know, I mentioned it with Eric Bledsoe. Eric Bledsoe keeps taking all these threes. That's not Eric Bledsoe's thing. You just stop doing that. Giannis is taking all these threes. Not Giannis' thing. Stop Mm -hmm. doing that. Like, the Mm -hmm. only ones that should be given green light, shoot, whatever, I don't care, right now is George Hill, Kyle Korver, and Chris Middleton. Uh, everyone else should not be given an automatic green light 
unless you know it's like if it's brook or west in the corner and they're open yes you shoot it if they're open regardless you shoot it but if it's a it's slightly contested and you still have you know 15 14 15 seconds left on a shot clock don't take the shot and i think that's kind of the issue and also milwaukee's tempo has just been a lot slower and maybe that's because miami does a really good job of getting back but milwaukee's pace seems to be a little bit lower than what we were used to we're used to seeing them get the ball immediately get on transition and get the guys get to those you know four spaces and that hasn't been happening in the series and again that could also just be miami is a well-coached team and they made sure that they get back on defense but i'm still more concerned about the offense because even with all the things that broke right milwaukee's offense still looked jaded and blunt and kind of dull at times even though they did get a great performance out of Chris Middleton and a good performance out of everyone else who covers up those issues. Yeah, it's been it's been fascinating to me to see how yesterday was still. Like, the offense looked stunted. It didn't look like it had a whole lot of movement to it. It was nice to see guys penetrating a little more. I was just looking at numbers just to back up the stuff you were talking about, Kyle, and I mean, it's it's the same thing we've talked about with Eric Bledsoe all the time, right? I mean, he's shooting. I'm looking at his numbers here. In the restricted area, he's 70% in this series. In the paint, non-restricted area, he's 50%. He's 12.5% from mid-range, 22.2% from three, right? Giannis is 21.4% from three. Uh, they just aren't making those shots out there. They need to continue to penetrate and play their game. And I think that was the, I mean, that was heartening to see from Eric Bledsoe yesterday is at least he was finding time to, you know, go downhill, force contact with the heat. That's really like, I mean, that's the, that's the game we need to see from him more and more and more. Um, and I, I do think uh, talking about defensively though, I, I do think the overhelping thing is just, it's, it's going to almost like parody levels. I feel like there's like an edict in there where, Anytime the Miami Heat shoot, there needs to be like two people jumping at them to try and deter the shot when one would probably do fine. I mean, case in point, the Butler thing at the end when Giannis was jumping out there to try and try and guard that shot. I'm not quite sure why they feel so insistent on having to do that over and over. Um, and the other thing is the Heat are not taking many shots at the rim. So the Bucks are doing pretty good at walling that off. But when they're getting there, they're converting. They're shooting around 66, like they're shooting 66% when in the regular season, Bucks opponents would shoot 55%. And then the other thing is just in the short mid range. So like floaters areas, basically, you know, the heat are shooting 50% and in the regular season teams would shoot 36% against the Bucks. So essentially the, the two things you're doing, the reason the Bucks defense was so good was they didn't let people shoot at the rim. And then they couldn't shoot at the rim. They stopped them really well. And right now they're not holding up their end of the bargain in terms of stopping the Heat from converting at the rim. And it's just so strange to me because the Heat aren't even, if you look at their numbers, it's not like they're master class finishers uh, in the short mid-range at all. They're decent at the rim. But, you know, I think the thing that's just stood out to me most of all is that things that the Heat weren't even supremely good at in the regular season they're suddenly being really good at, whether it's like offensive rebounding um, or second chance points that like wasn't a huge strength of theirs. And that's something that the Bucks typically take away from teams, but somehow the Heat are able to capitalize upon the Bucks so far. So it's just, it's felt so much more like the Heat are being able to do what the Heat want to do. And the strengths that the Bucks have are all of a sudden being neutered by what the Heat are, you know, doing to Milwaukee's defense. 
I think the main point is that Goran Dragic, Dragic can he makes one thousand percent of his floaters. That's the main issue. Is we're designed to give up the floaters, and they have one of the greatest of all time taking the floaters. And I think another thing, I mean, joking aside, he is really good at that, which is a problem. And we've seen that against like certain guards, which is kind of annoying. But usually the guards sucked enough that it didn't matter. It was regular season. The other thing is like I didn't get to see um, the first and the second game uh, live just because we were moving or whatever. But I saw a lot of people complaining about Brooke not having the foot speed to be able to close out guys that when we're doing the drop scheme. And I thought that was, I, I don't know if you guys would agree with that because that feels like if they're, so Miami's converting a lot at the mid range. I don't know if that's a case of them just being like really good shooters and just having the luck of making it there or if Brooke hasn't been closing out quick enough. So what did you like, would you guys agree with that assessment in the first couple of games or does that feel like that's not the issue point? I would say in game one, the bigger issue is Brooke and Giannis both got an early foul trouble and that threw off the defense completely. And you're then going with Marvin Williams play minutes, even at the five. And that, and you had guys like Pat Connaughton running out there, Kyle Corp. And so they had a lot of guys out there, and Miami can blow past them and take those mid-range shots. And a guy like Jimmy Butler, who thrives in that position, is hitting the shots. So in game one, I attributed it more to Brooklyn Giannis foul trouble. Game two, I don't – yes and no. I think Brook has been a little bit later on his rotations, and part of that might be because – they're having to do more rotating because they're overhelping on things, so it just throws everything off. But I, I don't think that has been a bigger issue in terms of Lopez not being there soon enough. I think they haven't been as aggressive because I truly believe they're worried about getting called to fouls. And that has been more of an issue for Milwaukee than simply... Brooke not being fast enough because there's plenty of times in the past where Brooke has not been fast enough, but he's been able to get to the shot and contest it well enough that even if, if the other team misses it, he's able to get the rebound or box someone out and Giannis gets the rebound. And that hasn't happened either. It seems like their boxing out has been very inconsistent. Part of that is because of the overhelping and two guys are out of Miami shooter. Part of it is long rebounds and tips. And part of it is just Miami seems to just want it more and they put in more work to get it so i don't fully think that's been the issue it's not invalid at least for game two but when looking at milwaukee's defense i don't think brooke not being fast enough has been the top of the list i think it would probably be you know if i had to rank it it may be fifth at most I think one of the other big issues is the fact that Giannis appears to have turned into a pumpkin for the most part, at least through the first three games defensively, just like getting lost a lot on basic switches and stuff, or just like, I don't know. I, I wonder if he like internalized the comments of like, oh, why didn't, why wasn't Giannis switched on Jimmy Butler, which is obviously the, the dumbest rhetoric ever. <laughs> but like, I do wonder if there was a certain level of like, he's just trying too hard and in trying so hard, he's like getting lost out there. I think that's probably it. And maybe you guys would disagree, but I think that's probably a big issue where like the whole thing is based upon him being like the all time help defender. And if he's just getting lost on like basic coverages, then that's uh, going to be a problem for the rest of the defense. Yeah, that definitely is not helping. I think, yeah, he's definitely been more aggressive and maybe he's trying too much, but I think everyone's been over aggressive. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be because of the threats of guys like Duncan Robinson and Tyler Harrow. 
um, being able to shoot off the dribble, guys like Kelly Olenek that can pick and pop, and then you still have Goran Dragic who can hit shots off the dribble and hit every floater known in the history. So I think it's definitely a lot of over-aggressive defense. Giannis has been very at fault as a help side defender because I think of the aggressiveness that he wants to do. Yeah, I, I haven't felt like the this has not felt like the Orlando series where it's it's basically an indictment of the the scheme getting beat by a pick and pop big. I, I don't feel like it's played like that. I don't think it's felt like that at all. It, it's felt a lot more like, you know, Miami relies on their guards. They rely on a bunch of screening. They rely on those guys to be running around picks constantly. So it's reliant upon the Bucks defenders to be able to keep up with them. Uh, if, you know, they really aren't going to switch. So you are going to have to basically Pat Connaughton's going to have to run around the arc three or four times or whatever, and try and stick with Duncan Robinson. It's felt. And, and plus my, Miami just usually Kelly Olenek isn't out there to be honest. He certainly hasn't really killed us too badly this series. Um, and Bam Adebayo plays inside the arc. I've been more, I would say disheartened by Brooks inability to one, I think keep Bam Adebayo's impact on the boards, um, so just to neuter that, I mean, this is we're t- we've talked about the Lopez effect for years where the team as a whole uh, rebounding numbers really go down. But Brooke doesn't have the you know put up gaudy numbers. He has not been able to keep Bam off the glass. And also, I think we saw it a little bit more yesterday, but I, I just can't believe the um, um, amount of times they are able to find either dunks at the rim through the pick and roll or find pocket passes to. Um, Bam or Butler, they just have incredible patience on the pick and roll, whether it, you, usually it's Dragic, but you know, those are the kind of passes that the Bucks would tip away or would get, have like so many hands in there. Like that's when Giannis as a help defender can be so good. Um, I mean, at times in the, you know, in the regular season, we, we'd see a guy like Dante tag, tag someone who's rolling in from the backside for a dunk and Dante would like jump up and meet him for a block. I mean, I think we saw that at least once in the year, but Th- those are the kind of reads that I don't feel like the defense is 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 making at all, uh, and that's a lot more. Con- that's that's really concerning to me because we knew that they would stop. The th- they knew that they would. Miami would up the three point shots, uh, but the inability for the Bucks to to really feel like the paint is their own domain uh, ha- has has probably bothered me the most out of anything. Yeah, it's just it's strange. I don't, how do you diagnose that even like that? And I don't know if we're probably going to get into the fire bud, don't fire bud uh, <laughs> talk here eventually. That's going to be a topic all its own. But I I wonder, again, how much of it is like, like Kyle said, are they just overly aggressive? Is it like a mentality thing? Because we saw them do it, like you said, all year. And even though they had a couple of months off, we're like a month into, a month plus into the bubble at this point. And yes, I know that the bubble games didn't matter and the first rounds essentially didn't matter or whatever as well, but you'd figure at this point they'd have worked it out. And I think that's probably, I I would agree with Kyle that there's probably more worries on the offensive end in general, like how consistent that could be. But like the fact that that still continues to be an issue on defense and you can't really easily diagnose it outside of like mentality slash wanting it. I mean, that's fine if they don't want to be there, if they're like indifferent to the bubble. I mean, that's fine, but that's just going to be a huge hindrance to like effectively not making sure your defense isn't totally neutered and then you're having to play catch up playing like quicksand offense on the other end. Yeah, there's a myriad of issues, which makes sense for when you're down 3-1 in a series. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much, yeah. Well, do you... 
you guys want to talk about Giannis or do you want to talk about Bud first? But let's go with Giannis. <laughs> okay, so Giannis obviously has the right ankle sprain, doesn't play for the rest of this game. I'm not even going to – I don't really know how to even diagnose, you know, whether he'll come to play. I know usually I'm the doctor on this, but uh, I, I am not going to – be able to offer any sort of helpful advice. I can jump in for that one as someone okay. with right. multiple ankle sprains and broken Here we ankles. go. <laughs> um, pretty much once you tweak it or sprain it and a light sprain the first time, you can still, after a day or two, you can still do everything you want. But when you do it a second time shortly after, it's going to hurt like hell and it's probably going to make things worse. That's why when like someone has a sprained ankle, it's like, yes, they can play through it, but the second you tweak it again, you're done. And a lot of people are saying, well, Isaiah Thomas played with like a bad ankle in the finals or whatever. I was like, Isaiah Thomas did it initially, was able to play through it. If he had done it, if he had tweaked it again, he would have been done. And that's kind of what happened with Giannis. And we also know, and I would be shocked if Giannis played in game five, just because it was already bad enough that you could not play you were already questionable going into game four and it was a last minute decision. And now that you tweaked it and made it worse, and it was to the point that you couldn't even put any pressure on it. I Again, I wouldn't be surprised if Giannis tried his best to try and play. I would not be surprised if ESPN told the Bucks do not make an announcement until the last minute so that people don't automatically stop watching. I don't expect Giannis to play in game five if it gets to game six. Then we're saying maybe because it's just more of a pain tolerance. How much it, is that? It's a pain tolerance, and if you can put pressure and weight on it at that point, I would think right now it's swollen as hell, and right now they're just trying to ice and elevate it as much as possible to reduce the swelling. So, my analysis is going to be: he's not going to play Game Five. If there's a Game Six, you're pushing it, but. It's highly likely, and he will play in Game Seven if it gets to a Game Seven. I, my only two things. Thank you, Doctor Kyle or Doctor Carr. <laughs> appreciate that. I think that was a good explanation, and I agree. Watching the video of it, it looked painful. I mean, anybody who's ever rolled their ankle, I'm sure everybody has. It's not great. The only two things I'm hoping is one, they have the dude who's dressed up in the Mickey Mouse costume. I'm hope he's massaging that ankle from now until the game starts, and then two. If Giannis isn't ready to go, I hope Ursan's limbered up because he's going to be drafted in the starting lineup for sure, and it's going to be awesome to watch. So I'm looking forward to Game Five just for that reason alone. How about yesterday? How about in in Game Four when Van Gundy was like, "Oh, and DJ Wilson getting up to the oh, oh no, he's no, never mind, he's being set back down. No DJ Wilson." <laughs> <laughs> Budenholzer, that was a shout out to Twitter that by Budenholzer is like, watch this. I'm just gonna psych. <laughs> that was definitely a. I spent too much time following Bucks Twitter, and I'm going to just troll the living hell out of them. <laughs> because well, no, DJ Wilson is not the answer. He has not been the answer the last three years. He had one stretch of good play. If two head coaches and three years isn't going to get him on the court, I don't think he's a good player. All right, Ben, stop trying to say DJ Wilson oh. is the answer <laughs> and that we stunted his development because that's not true. And uh, let's now that we did our DJ Wilson talk, who we now we can say that we prioritize DJ Wilson discussion over Giannis discussion. So <laughs> going, going back to the Giannis stuff, um, outside of the injury alone, he's been like tough to get like nailed down. So I think most people would agree he's been less than seller on defense, which like that's relatively straightforward to diagnose, like just getting lost on things. He just hasn't been there. Okay. 
Offensively, um, I mean, like game two, he was really good. Game two, he was really good. It offensively, that is just like the numbers he put up. He was good. Um, game four and the eleven minutes he played, but like it's still. I, I, and Adam, you could probably say a lot more about this because you put together the article begging Giannis to please play a little bit better to like <laughs> help us out, which would be great. But like, there's there's still questions I think we can all have, and it's fine to criticize the guy. Like it is what it is. There's still questions about like timing and recognition and like how much of it is he's being told by the coaching staff to like continue to bull rush it. How much of it was like he was doing a couple like mid-range post moves early in the season that he just he does not do anymore. How much of that is like coach out versus he's just trying to trust the game that he's comfortable with. Like, I don't know. It's tough to figure out how much blame is on him versus like the rest of the teammates where he has to like once he recognizes it, finding the right open pass or like making the pass. Like that's just tough to do. And I'm not sure if he's there yet. And if that's the case. I don't know how you solve for that unless you have to rely on everybody else. But he's just kind of been a weird mixed bag. There's moments of praise and there's moments of like, I don't know what's happening here, really. It's like concern, really. It's almost like he's, I don't say reverted, but it seems like we're seeing more the Giannis in that playoff series against the Raptors and the playoff series against the Celtics than we saw last year and this season, where you know he's going to do it, and it seems like his passes aren't – it just isn't as crisp. It isn't as fluid. It isn't as, you know, decisive. It seems like there's some hesitation. It seems like there's some – something that's slightly holding him back. And that's not to say that he's reverted to that. It just seems like we've seen more hesitation and less – I guess less decisiveness out of him, if that makes sense. Like, he'll still get to the hoop, but it seems like in moments that he probably could have – absolutely laser to pass to the corner he's kind of looking and isn't really doing that he's kind of in this awkward like trying to do a finish he hasn't finished that well around the rim in game one and three especially like he just hasn't finished as well and maybe if he finishes those it's a little bit better he hasn't really gotten calls for too many of those offensive fouls where he just bulldozes into a guy and they take a charge either so it's not like he's been getting a lot of charges called against him. He's still getting called for it, but it's not as frequently as we might've initially feared. And yeah, like he's not going to his post moves. He's not going to try to do mid rangers. It just seems like the, it's just not as decisive as it usually is. Adianis on the offensive end and how much of that is. And I'm trying to not put too much on game three because we, he also sprained the ankle early on. So trying to feel that out was probably a little bit tougher, but yeah, it just seems like it's not, not necessarily not confident, but it's not as I know exactly what I'm going to do and you're not going to stop it kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it's really tough. I mean, you saw at the start of games here, we've seen a couple of times where the first plays have gone to Giannis and they've been kind of getting him in that, that, that triple threat position uh, right on the elbow where he's been getting the ball. I would say earlier in the playoffs, we saw a lot of first plays. I, I think that's always actually a really fascinating thing to watch is watch who the first play of the game is drawn up for. We saw it a lot for Chris Middleton in the first series against Orlando. Clearly he was struggling, Bud wanted to get him going. They were doing that for Giannis and he was kind of getting that elbow jumper. Um, and we, we've seen some of those moves he was practicing early in the year that you were alluding to, Riley. I mean, that step back to the free throw line, the like knee, you know, faux dirk, knee up, out, turnaround jumper. Uh, I mean, those were moves that he was practicing. Those were 
you know, the the reported counter moves that he had been practicing, getting ready for this year. Those those, those have essentially disappeared, or he's not really converting them at the clip that we want. I think you make a really good point, Kyle, about his decisiveness, and I I think part of that is is when we look at this is something that's been brought up before, and we see you know the Bucks are shooting. I would say in terms of three pointers, the people are shooting about what we would expect them to shoot, right? Giannis is not Giannis is struggling, Bledsoe is struggling, and then a couple other people are are you know pulling their weight, whether it's Lopez, Middleton, Hill, um, sometimes Corver, but you know. Giannis needs to be able to, before he runs into the three group of three or four people, you know, he's got to be able to diagnose the pass and pass it a second before he gets the like third arm in there. Um, but I think the other issue is, I mean, if the guy he's passing to on the end of that is, I don't know, Pat Connaughton, like he's probably just going to shoot. Like, it's not like Pat Connaughton's probably going to pump fake and drive like it, you know, maybe George Hill is going to do something else maybe Bledsoe will, but you're not going to be helping on Bledsoe very closely. So you're going to have time to recover to him if he tries to drive. Uh, I, I mean, that's that's really one of the issues is that the people that, that Giannis is passing to, um, the Heat are recovering to really quickly, and they're not that big of a threat to do anything beyond just shoot it. And I think the Heat are just going to live with most of those shooters just shooting it. Uh, and so I think, like you said, it's kind of hard to met out the who's, you know, quote unquote fault it is for for some of that yeah i don't know it's been strange and like it i i wish we didn't have to play kyle carver so many minutes i wish we would stop doing that it's just like the 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 other issue is so we have like these Giannis troubles but going back to kyle's way earlier point about the offense like the way this roster is kind of set up and the way that the minutes are doled out we're just gonna like have problems against a team that can play somewhat adequately because like, okay, so you have Giannis, you can assume hopefully like decent game on offense. Chris, if he's aggressive and hopefully game four is a sign of more things to come, you can rely on him. Brooke, all credit to him last year in the Toronto series. I mean, you look back at this series, like the stats, they look pretty decent, but like, especially in this round, he's been very good in every single game. Like he's, his three point shooting has, I think it's like almost 45% for the playoffs as it were. So, I mean, credit to him. He's been everything we need. Then you come down to the other guys on the team, right? So Eric, I'm uncomfortable assuming anything positive. Like if we happen to get a good game, that's great. Otherwise, like he routinely goes like 0 of 6 from 3, and that's just six wasted possessions. Like Kyle said, I'd rather he just not take threes at all. Um, And then Wes, I mean, he's a good shooter, but all year and in the playoffs in the bubble, he's just, he's not, he's going to be the lowest usage guy out of the five starters. Like that's just what he does. He'll take threes, which is great. And he'll just take like four or five threes if he's having like a really productive game. And then you get past that. It's like, okay, George Hill hasn't been as hot and then everybody else kind of sucks. Like you don't know what to expect offensively from those guys. And so meeting out blame, I mean, is the blame just that everybody that we have isn't as good offensively because they're stuck in like very specific roles and they can't do much else beyond that. I don't know. Like if you're going to have three reliable starters, that's a good place to go. But if everybody else has been crud, then you're kind of SOL because most teams should be able to scheme for those three guys or at least survive those three and do enough on the other end. I don't know. It's just, there's a lot of questions about like roster construction, the minute allocation, again, I would really hope we just don't see Kyle Korver anymore because I am I was done with that experiment when the season started. I'm double done with it now that we're in the bubble too. It's just a lot of players on the bench that I'm like, 
I don't like that. Just don't feel confident having him out there, which is a real shame because we needed like one or two guys to have consistently good games off the bench to really help cushion up everything on the offensive end. Yeah. It's kind of like it almost like one thing caused the other. So if Giannis isn't playing well, then it forces the other players to step up. But if the other players don't step up, then you're kind of having to throw break, Glass in case of emergency with Kyle Corver and Pat Connaughton and Dante and hope that they have a good game. But if they don't have a good game, then Giannis feels like he has to do it all himself. And it just continues going in that cycle. And yeah, I mean, part of that is roster construction. And part of that is the scheme itself. Because one of the things with this Budenholzer scheme is it empowers guys to shoot threes if they think they have a green light to shoot it. Like Budenholzer is giving them a green light. And if they think they should shoot it, they're going to shoot it. And a lot of that issue is there's a lot of guys on this roster that simply are not good shooters. I would say if you had to say who's a good shooter in Milwaukee, it's Kyle Korver, Chris Middleton, and right now George Hill. And that's it. Wes Matthews can, like there's a lot of guys that can hit threes. Like Wes Matthews can hit threes. He's not going to take a lot of them though. So, you know, if he's only shooting five and hits two, I guess percentage-wise that looks good, but it's not really helpful. Dante can hit threes, but he hasn't. Pat Connaughton can hit threes, but he hasn't. You know, Mario Williams, like all of these guys, and other than Brooke Lopez, who now has at least picked his three-pointers better, because before they are all like above the break threes, and he was a trailing guy, and he would just let it fly from there. And it helps when you make them, but at the very least you're stretching out the defense, but now he's kind of picked it and been more in the corner, which is really, really helpful right now. And I think that's really why his three-point shooting has looked so good is because most of them have been in the corner now instead of above the break. But when you're letting so many guys that, yes, they can hit threes, but I don't know if they're going to make it, then you're creating this. When they fall, they look great, and the Bucks' offense looks humming and everyone's happy. But when they're missing, then it's like, okay, now what do you do? And a guy like Kyle Korver, like you brought him in for, so that he could single-handedly win you a playoff game by hitting three or four threes. But the problem is we don't know when that's going to be. And at what cost is it going to be defensively? <laughs> uh, it's it it's tough. I mean, so we we talk clearly. Kyle Korver was basically <laughs> Bud was allowing him to play because he was tethered to Giannis. We didn't really see him at all yes all yesterday in the second half. I I don't think mm-hmm. he played in the second half. So very clearly, Bud has tethered Corver Giannis makes sense in theory, right? Hopefully Giannis can cover up for Corver's defensive gaffes. Corver can knock down a couple threes. Hallelujah. Let's all go home and hope the old man can still walk the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm interested in now is we saw game four. I mean, we talked about the biggest adjustment adjustment, which was clearly playing your best players better. You know, great thing to tweet that just subtweets the organization. You see it all the time, <laughs> play your best players for a longer amount of time. So we, we've talked about this all year, too. When it was gut check time last year against the Raptors, and the Bucks still lost, but Bud finally went to like, all right, I got these eight dudes. These are my eight dudes. These are who I'm going to play. We did this exercise all year. Now it seems like maybe we're at the point where we're going to have, these are the eight dudes we're going to play. Who do you guys see as those eight dudes? So uh, This is such a good question. Go for it, Kyle. So when Giannis is healthy, you have your starters, and the only people I feel confident off the bench are Marvin Williams, George Hill, and Dante DiVincenzo. 
And Dante, if, Dante recently, right? That's the only reason is because he's played well recently, right? He was a and pumpkin all, throughout the rest of the bubble. He was straight pumpkining on us. It was straight pumpkin, but at the very least, <laughs> the alternatives were Kyle Korver, Pat Connaughton, or Dante. And I will take Dante because at least Dante's off the ball and his defense is still decent enough that I can live with him defensively than Pat Connaughton. Pat Connaughton defensively, liability. Kyle Korver can't move. So <laughs> if I have to pick one of those three, it's going to be Dante. Now that Giannis is out potentially for game five, uh, I'm okay with just running seven. I wouldn't even just I wouldn't even bother with adding another guy because Pat Connaughton isn't it, Kyle Corver isn't it. Are you really gonna try and bring DJ Wilson and Sterling Brown and or Ursan out of the cold and say, Hey, we're in a must win, you haven't played all series, go try and help us? No, just go with seven at that point. So I do. I would just say normal starters, if Giannis is healthy, with uh, Dante, George Hill, and Marvin. And with Giannis out, you just roll with seven. And don't even bother with adding another person because it's it's all going to – it's not going to work. It's just going to fail miserably. Just stick with seven. How do you feel, Riley? Who, who would be your guys? Oh God. It's so one, it is comical that we have to literally wait until like the very last <laughs> second because it was game six last year. It's like, all right, but I was like, I got to cut some of the fat now. Like it's, just, <laughs> it's so funny that it takes that long until like the season is literally over and then he goes for it. So like, I agree with Kyle. Um, you go with your starters. I mean, George, because you need somebody who's not Eric. So that makes sense. Marvin, because he's, 10 years younger than Ursan. Um, so, and I think Mar- okay, the, Marvin, I think has been sneaky bad this series. I think he's been sneaky bad. He, I think Marvin has been subpar. And, but the problem is what are you really expected out of the guy? I think relative expectations, he's done exactly what I thought. It's just that because he, w- he looked competent and the alternative was DJ Wilson or Ursan. Like we just made Marvin Williams better than he needed to be. But in reality, it's like you're still picking up a dude off of the waivers. Well, and the other way you can look at it as well, in my opinion, is like if you, in theory, in this rotation, we're increasing Giannis's minutes so that hopefully, like, you don't have to necessarily go to many bigs off the bench or anything. Uh, so, I mean, I would probably go Marvin just because he's actually played. Like, I don't know if I want to trust Urson right now, just out of the blue. Like, he is savvy, though. And it would be kind of like a sweet you know, narrative if Ursan saved our season or something. But um, I'd probably go Marvin, I guess, George, and then probably I probably would stick with Pat over Dante, to be honest. Like like you said, Adam, Dante's had the past two okay games, but... Um, How dare you? How I know, dare I'm you? sorry. We're, it's a really tough exercise to pick out eight guys. Everybody sucks on the bench. Like, who are you going to – George is, like, the only guy who's consistently good. Everybody else is just like, God only knows what's going to happen in this game. So five guys, Marvin, George, maybe Pat. Isn't it kind of a downer that we can't use Robin Lopez at all? I would have felt like he would have been – it's strange that he just stopped existing months ago, too. I think that's a strange – because it feels like – Against a team like Miami, especially this sort of a smaller team, like I know we're not an inside team whatsoever, and I know Robin isn't a three-point shooter, so it's like I don't know. It's just strange that he kind of got relegated immediately to the Netherlands, but I don't know. It's it's tough to pick out eight guys that he can rely upon. I would just ride the starters like all hell 
in just like five minutes for the dudes off the bench, essentially, at this point. The Robin thing is is very frustrating. Once again, I'd like to give myself an L for saying most uh, most improved buck would be Robin Lopez <laughs> this year. Never, never let me forget that. Um, the, the Robin thing actually is kind of baffling because I, and I could see a world where maybe he'd get dusted off. I mean, he was he looked like a corpse against Vucevic. He basically became unplayable. But like, I mean, the Heat aren't doing that. It's not like Bam's going down and just like showing off his barrage of <laughs> like he's basically just a large like a large dude who's strong and mm-hmm. somehow is like hasn't ever missed uh, a weird mid-range pull-up in his life mm-hmm. even though his mm-hmm. shot looks like it's gonna you know rainbow in and go over the shot clock every time um but i mean theoretically the way you're using brook right now is he's in the corners which is basically the only shot where i would trust robin lopez to shoot offensively so you could do that maybe he gives you a little more chance on the boards than Marvin Williams right now. And when I said Marvin Williams has been sneaky bad, I in no way meant it's time to play your son. Please no. No, 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 it's not. We don't need that. But um, I, I think, I think Marvin, this is a really bad series for him. I think because you, you think of him as like he's older, but he can kind of, you know, he can play up a little bit and like match the, but the Heat are just too athletic. They have they have too many guys that are mm-hmm. you know Bam's like a prototypical guy who can play could play small and like Marvin is just going to get absolutely you know demolished yeah. by him, um, which would be the only reason I could see Robin maybe getting dusted off a little and like I could see Bam also just blowing him into oblivion and like getting every single offensive rebound in sight. But yeah. offensively, the theory of Robin is basically how you're using Brook right now. So. Yeah. I think True. I would go with the same people that Kyle said for my age. But I think the issue is we were assuming with Marvin and or Ursan or even Robin, they're going to come in when the starters just need a breather, but they wouldn't be playing extended periods. <laughs> and off of games one through three, that would not have been the case. Like they're playing more than they need to because the starters aren't playing enough because for some reason you decide 35, 36 minutes is a ceiling. And now I'm going to start going off on Boone and Holder, so I, I'm just going to get on get this off my chest. What the hell are you trying to say by saying, oh yeah, 35, 36 minutes is a player ceiling? And then it, we know you can play dudes a lot of minutes. You freaking played Tim Frazier 53 a whole the whole game. Literally <laughs> a whole game plus overtime. Tim Frazier you did that with. So you cannot tell me that Giannis and Chris and Brooke have these like ceilings where they can't play more minutes. It's not beneficial because we know you can do it. You've done it. You've thrown all bench lineups out there. So I don't know what nonsense you're trying to throw out there. Even if Giannis and Chris are in foul trouble, I think there's for a game, I don't remember it was two or three where Chris was in foul trouble, but even if Bunoz kept playing more, he would have only maxed out at 37 minutes. And at that point, it's like, at what point are you, being detrimental to the team. You know, Chris Middleton has been a plus minus god in the series. And yet in game three, in the biggest stretch of when Milwaukee what probably could have saved Milwaukee season, you're up like 12 in the third quarter. Miami goes in this run and Chris Middleton is nowhere to be found. And why is that? Like this is why you did all those minute conservations in the regular season. And you have a COVID break. So you had another three months to get these guys' legs fresh. You're not wearing them down. And then you had the bubble. And then you have the Orlando series. And it's like you had these moments to get the conditioning back up. So the fact that they can't play, you think they can't handle 40 minutes, 
is a little bit insulting. And it really does bring the question, then why the hell are you even bothering all these minute restrictions in the regular season if you're not going? This is why you restrict the minutes in regular season so that come postseason, they're ready to go. They can play more. They're fresher than, say, James Harden, who's out here constantly playing 46, not 46, but, you know, like 42, 43 minutes per game, or LeBron, who's played all these minutes. Like, that's why you we criticize Kidd for playing Giannis and Chris so many minutes in the regular season because come postseason, it would have burned them out, and now we have the exact opposite, where Budenholzer comes in and doesn't want to play them at all. And that's – and especially in stretches where Miami was going on a run, you did not put guys in that would have helped you win. In game two, it was the same thing with Chris Middleton. In game three, it was again with Chris Middleton. You don't play Wes Matthews in game one when Jimmy Butler is torching you. It's like, what are you doing – with your rotations at this point, and then to double down and try and say 35, 36 minutes is a ceiling, and then you turn around and Brad Stevens and Nick Nurse are pretty much just saying, no, after that, we don't care. Like, ceilings, this is the playoffs. This shit doesn't matter. Like, we're going to play these guys as many minutes as we think they can handle, like, we think is necessary because we need to win the damn game. And Budenholz is like, nope, we're good. I'm good. And that's... I mean, that's not the biggest reason why I'm, I'm leaning towards fire bud, but it's it's a pretty it's a damning indictment, is all I have to say. When your best like you saw what happened in game four. You play your good players more minutes and good things happen, or at least better things happen. I think it's so if we're gonna get into Budenholzer, which it feels like we're slowly moving there anyhow. It's so in game three, if we're talking about minute allocation, to his credit, he went to an eight-man rotation. Like he played Corver for five minutes. He played Pat for like one minute. Fine. Okay. So he cut it down. Everybody else played like 20 plus minutes. Like you said, Kyle, it kind of comes down to now he's he put George Hill out there for 31 minutes. Okay. That's acceptable because Eric was not having a good game offensively, especially. So you need to have somebody. That's fine. Marvin plays 22 minutes. Dante plays 21 minutes. Like Dante does okay as 10 points. Like he wasn't a total like sieve on that end. Marvin just two points. And then everybody else, all the starters are like 35-ish minutes. It's just, that's, I understand because I think Chris ended up fouling out. I think he ended up getting six fouls, right? So he did have the foul trouble, but it's like, you have to trust the guy because he's definitely just a net upgrade. And again, to their credit, up until the fourth quarter, absolute disaster, which how much of that is on Budenholzer, how much of that is on like the players just totally, you know, pooping the bed. I don't know what to like, where the blame goes there. (laughs) (laughs) But like, to his credit, he did the right thing where the rotation shortened up and then the minute allocation was all in place. And how much of that is like on the fly, he's just like, thinking too much of like swapping guys in and out if he's too conservative with like I don't want to lose Chris permanently for the rest of the game but like you're already up you might as well just try and like you can play a little bit cautious conservatively with him on the defensive end but like he is a net multiplier on the offensive end there's no way around that so you you would rather that than like Dante or like Marvin for example whoever whoever else you have in place of Chris and so it's like the minutes have gotten slowly better, but they're not still not good enough. And it took Giannis going out to get the other starters to over 40 minutes. And it's like, I don't know. It's it's so difficult because if guys aren't used to playing 40 minutes, I have to assume, I mean, just thinking about conceptually going that hard for like even an extra six minutes if you only have occasional breaks, that's got to be tiring. But you have the halftime, you have timeouts, you have the you know moments in between quarters to kind of catch your breath. You hope they're able as athletes to be able to just like knock out the extra five minutes. But 
I, it's just strange. It, it's baffling. I don't get it. I understood it in the first round because it's a team that, you know, it's just whatever. But even then, you could edge the minutes up a little bit. We were still only getting like 30, 32 minutes of like starters, which is fine, but isn't going to be helpful when a week later you're going to have to be ratcheting these dudes way up to try and survive. And I know there are a lot of people who are like, oh, well, we'll beat the hell out of Miami. Like, I don't care about Miami. We're, you know, matchup nightmare or whatever. They gave us trouble all year. I don't, do we, I think we won a game, but we had trouble with them in all the games. And like, the bubble on a big second half comeback. Yes. And yeah, they beat, so they beat them in the bubble. I think at the start of the season, they lost to Miami without Jimmy Butler. Like, Spolstra is a really good coach. Like, it was the whole lineup. They have a very versatile roster. They're kind of small. Like, there's a lot of things that were going to be trouble. And it just seems strange that it took getting smacked in game one and then losing a heartbreaker in game two to, like, sort of start moving in the right direction. And that's what I'm most concerned about is, like, I can forgive a guy like Coach Bud. Game one, you lose whatever, like, if you want to just see if your principles are going to work, that's fine. And then you if it looks as bad as it did in game one, you have to start immediately thinking like, okay, what's going to be the changes instead of waiting to game four to be like, okay, well maybe we can do like a simple change, like drop under pick and rolls for Jimmy. Like if Jimmy wants to try and win it from three, that's fine. We'll just make that. We'll just let him have that happen. Like small stuff like that, that it takes until you're up, up against the wall. That's the concern because it's like, you need to at least in game three, start changing things up. Like, yes, you lost a heartbreaker in game two, and it was strange fouls, all sorts of weird stuff going on. But it's like there were other signs throughout that you needed to make some adjustments to try and put yourself in a better position because you keep folding, you keep having really bad, the Miami's having great offensive quarters. Like there were enough red flags that it's strange that it took them to game four and the season essentially over to like do the right things. And even on top of that, it took Giannis getting injured for him to like finally have his hand forced and go with a lot more minutes. So there's just a lot of things where it's like, I'm confused why it takes this guy so long to even minor adjustments. I'm not asking to like, just go to switching out of the blue. Cause that's not something we do either. And maybe we can even get into the fact that we don't do anything else in the regular season and like practice time, maybe not enough time to like get used to other looks. If you want to roll that out, like the whole, like, we're not going to roll out any of our cool plays like during the games. Cause we don't want to give away the film. How about what, what if we just don't have anything else? What if that is the issue? Wait, what if we're not conserving film? We just don't do anything else. And if that's the case, that's a serious problem too. And I don't know how to rectify that uh, unless it's a coaching change, which I, I'm still mixed on that, which we can kind of get into as well. In game one, Budenholzer not play Wes Matthews at the end while Jimmy Butler is cooking was what lost them game one. Because Wes Matthews had guarded Jimmy Butler really, really well. And the second they, Miami went on that run and Wes Matthews is sitting on the bench, even as Jimmy hits two or three shots, that's when Budenholzer should have turned and said, get back in there and guard this guy. And he just didn't do that. Game two is a weird thing, whatever. Game three, I look at game three's fourth quarter as the same as the Green Bay Packers in the national, in the NFC championship game against Seattle. You got this lead and then you just went way too, sorry, Adam. <laughs> you went way too conservative, way too quickly with way too much time left. And that, it, it felt exactly like that, where all of a sudden, yes, you can maybe understand you have this lead, let your bench ride it out. You're up 12. Don't immediately throw Chris back in there. But then once it gets down to like, six four or six then you need to get him back in there and i think and it's kind of the same thing with mccarthy it was like all of a sudden you have this large lead and immediately just went way too conservative with way too much time left 
And I think that was the problem is Budenholzer just like did not want to try and be more aggressive because he thought, okay, we're still good. We're still fine. We still believe. We still believe. Well, the issue is it's kind of like baking where if you're not paying attention and you start smelling smoke, you don't think anything of it. You're like, oh, maybe it's burning a little bit. And then you look in your oven's on goddamn fire. And Budenholzer realized the oven's on goddamn fire when Miami had tied the game and pretty much that was it. And McCarthy realized the oven's on fire when Seattle gets the onside kick and that it's too late by then. Like you've already done the damage by not trying to be proactive. And now you're having to be reactive. And as we see with Budenholzer, he's not really a reactive person. I, there's, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff with Bud. The, the couple things, couple things stood out to me. One game four, a tale of two baseline out of bounds plays. The Miami heat get an extra possession. Uh, even though the ball went out of Jimmy Butler might've been like the third quarter or something. And they turned it into a super simple Duncan Robinson corner three. He splashes it on the other end. I think the same quarter, Bucks have two in baseline out of bounds plays where they can pass the ball in. What do they do? Looks like they're like throwing it into five heat defenders. They turn it over two times. I, I mean, like, even if you don't have Giannis in there, like it's pretty inexcusable to have two out of bounds plays on the baseline turn into immediate turnovers. Like that that's pretty inexcusable. That's just like a like getting out coached on a tech tactical level. So, the other part about Bud not making adjustments, it's just, it seemed very strange to me because if we think back to last year, okay, there were times where we saw the Bucks switch. A lot of times it was against Charlotte. A lot of times it was against the Hornets because we were getting our butts whipped. Then all of a sudden we went to switching and the team destroyed them. Now, switching was not a panacea. I don't think the Bucks were super great at it. It's not like they turned into like some switchable team that is going to, you know, blow the doors off everyone. But we saw it. And we saw it against Boston last year. We saw them go to switching more for the rest, for the remainder of that series. Not all the time, but they certainly did it more. And they did it with a much greater communication and on a string than they have in this series. This series, it doesn't look like they seem to know when the switches are supposed to happen, if they're doing them. The switches are coming weirdly late on like a pick and roll. They're like, was this your guy? Are we going to switch here? Are we not going to switch here? It, it, it baffles me because... There were stories literally written last year, and maybe it was like Taylor Jenkins pushing or whatever, but there were stories written last year about how those assistant coaches pushed Bud to practice switching last season because they said we were going to need it eventually. I'm not really sure why with a team that's essentially the same from last year, that would not still be the case here. That that is That just makes no sense to me. Maybe it's the layoff. Maybe it's that their heads aren't in it, which like you said, Riley, that's fair. I can believe that. But that just makes no sense to me that like a team that is almost the same as last year is built on one fundamental defensive principle. Even if they haven't practiced switching that much, they practiced it last year. We knew they were practicing it. How can it be such a disaster when they even try and attempt the most minimal amount of switching? That That is just so confusing to me. Yeah, and my biggest issue with Boonholzer is after the Toronto series, there was a, there was a clear like, Here's how you can contain and slow down Giannis. Here's how you can contain and slow down the Bucks' offensive scheme. It's This is how you do it. You get a, a defending by committee on Giannis. You throw all these guys. You do whatever it takes. Here it is. Good luck the rest of the NBA. 
Now, it's one thing when Toronto Raptors do it with Kawhi Leonard, but Miami, this is a scheme that works perfectly for a team like the Miami Heat. It's not going to be like the boss and tries throwing it out there. It's not going to work. But you ever, there was this blueprint on how to at least make things really, really difficult for Milwaukee Bucks. It was shown. It beat you. You lost four straight. And then you have 16 months to come up with a plan B. And that's something we have been saying all season. What is your plan B for when plan A doesn't work? And you've had 16 months to think of a plan B. And there has been absolutely no plan B put into effect. We thought maybe it's going to be Brooke in the post. Maybe it's going to be this Giannis Chris pick and roll. Who knows? But during the regular season, that's when he should have been screwing around with this. And fine, if you don't want to give them film, whatever, you should still be practicing it. And I don't know if they are practicing it or not, but it's clear that Budenholzer has no plan B. And you had 16 months where everyone in the league knew at least a way to beat you if they have the right personnel. And you face a Miami Heat team that showed in the regular season and game one and in the bubble we're going to go with this scheme that the Toronto Raptors showed us last year. And Budenholzer responds by saying, I'm going to continue going headstrong into this scheme because I believe my scheme works. And there's, it's fine to somewhat believe that, but at the same time, where is your plan B? It's still nowhere to be found. And the fact that you had 16 months to think of even trying an idea, it might not work. Even if it was simply a, we're just going to do this type of pick and roll to counter it, and you and it doesn't work, fine, whatever. If Budenholzer had a plan B and the plan B didn't work, I would be more forgiving of that. Of that. But the fact is, it's, there's apparently no plan B. There's apparently no way to find a system that can work against what the Toronto Raptors did to them last year. It's like he didn't learn anything. It's like he didn't take any lessons out of that whatsoever. And I know Giannis will say, well, I got to work on my mid-range and all this stuff. But at the same time, what have you been doing in the past 15, 16 months besides making sure that your plan A is near perfect? Well, it can't be near perfect. And we can get to, and I mean, part of that is roster construction because you have a bunch of guys that probably, it makes sense. It makes sense in theory, but in actual application, it's not going to work. But where was this? Like it, we knew Spolstar was going to coach circles around Budenholzer. We knew that was going to happen. But the fact that it's like it's not even like you can throw any coach out there right now. And I said this: Is Budenholzer the worst remaining coach in the playoffs? And a lot of people are saying yes, and some people are saying no. But he was at least in the bottom three. And for me, it was just more. I don't know how you look at what happened in the Toronto series. And not literally do anything else as a backup plan to counter it. And that has been my biggest issue. It's like you didn't learn anything from your playoff failure. You didn't learn anything from the first two games. You didn't it's like you didn't learn anything. It's almost like Jason Kidd with his switching defense, where Jason Kidd was so rigid and we're gonna stick with this defensive scheme and I don't care because I think I'm smarter than everyone else in the room and it doesn't work and everyone knows it doesn't work. And everyone that is a national media writer to literally a person across my street are like, this isn't working, but you're still running with it. And that's kind of how I feel with Budenholzer with his offense. It can work. The plan A is a really good plan A. It's really good. It, we've seen it work to effect to nearly get Milwaukee to the NBA finals. But plan A, when plan A doesn't work, 
where's your plan B? And there is no plan B. Just run to fucking Walgreens and get the plan B if you have to. Goddamn. Wow. All right. And I think we're going to end the podcast on that note. It's been great talking <laughs> to you guys. <laughs> no, I think a lot of what Kyle's points are valid. Boonholzer is such an interesting philosophical experiment for anybody who's thinking about coaching the NBA, right? Because from what we gather, it's so tough being like a bunch of randos on the internet who just happen to get together and record podcasts weekly. So I'm not going <laughs> to, so we don't have any sort of inside info or whatever. So we're just going off of what he says publicly, right? So one, the guy can scheme. Like, let's not get that confused. Like he said, the plan A, it's a really good plan A. He's got his players, his strengths. He's built around Giannis, et cetera, et cetera. So the guy can scheme. I would much rather have a guy who can effectively see the strengths on this roster and build something around it that takes you know advantage of what the mathematics would say, which is that three-pointers are helpful, putting Giannis in a good position. Like it, all that, that looks great. I'd rather have a guy like that than somebody that gets totally lost on basic X's and O's. The But then the follow-on from that is that he apparently doesn't feel comfortable scheming like on, on the fly. And like you said, Adam, tactically, there are issues where he, I don't know if it's a him or if it's like a player execution or what the issue is, that makes you question it. Two, we heard all season about the fact that this guy just lets his players, he said 80% of what happens on the court is just, it's determined by the players which is fine. And that's like a player friendly way to go. And if these guys are, if your plan A works and they just kind of do little variations on it, that works fine. Does that mean he's not comfortable or not effective if he was to increase the 20% of time he calls plays, which apparently the plays suck anyhow. So like, is the difficulty then he feels uncomfortable calling plays? If he does call plays, are the players thrown off by that? Um, so that, I think that's another issue where it's like you have, it's two-sided where you have a great schemer. You would love to have a guy who can on the fly in a series, create some sort of variation on the X's and O's to counter the other team. So I'd rather that, but if he's not comfortable calling plays, I mean, these, these games come down to a couple of possessions when you're like really up against the wall. And we have net, we all season long, we have not been a team that is good in a time. The clutch stats would probably be like, well, you're wrong because we are plus 700 in the clutch minutes, which is probably true. But it feels like in games like these and in <laughs> close games, we're just not effective. And whether that's because Boonholzer just lets the guys play and they figure it out and they're not confident or able to work it out outside of the principles that are drilled into their head all year long to move outside of that, th that again falls back on him. But it's like if we start thinking about replacements – I have no confidence whatsoever that, that we would be able to find a replacement. It's just so tough. Like maybe you find a replacement who's more willing to play guys minutes. It would be great. It feels like Boonholzer is kind of moving that direction game three and game four. And I can even understand in game one, you get blown out. You say, that's the fluky game. Miami plays really well. They shoot really well. Okay. Print the principles can still be put in place. Game two, I can also understand you get very close. It's like a weird Giannis foul at the end. Close game, you're like, we probably could have had that if Giannis just didn't make that that foul at the end. You can kind of, I can understand where mentally he's coming from there. And then game three and four, he starts moving a little bit in the right direction, but it takes until your back is totally up against the wall to go and break class in case of emergency and play these guys these minutes. It's just like, he's such a frustrating coach because he has so many positives. Like he's such a step up beyond kid, for example, or like anybody who does like a really old-fashioned offense like I, I think he can do it 
I just don't understand what mentally or in his philosophy is preventing him from being able to make the slight adjustments on the fly in the game or between the games that puts us into a better position and helps his players out. It's just, it's really baffling. And I don't, I don't feel comfortable saying he should go. I don't feel comfortable saying he should stay. We're in a really tough spot with it, I think. And who knows, maybe we'll pull off a miracle and like win this fucking series. And I don't know what that does for the calculus either, but like, it's just super hard to evaluate. I do not know what the right answer is. And I think you could convince me one way or the other, really. It's just like, it's a tough spot to be. I don't know. Yeah, it's just, I feel like the Bucks have hit their ceiling. I think we know what the Bucks ceiling, we know the Bucks can win a championship with the roster hat and plan and the scheme, initial scheme that's out there. We know it can do it. But at the same time, yes, we went from kid who was, completely incompetent to Boonholzer who is competent. Then it becomes, well, now we need a coach like with this Bucks roster and with the stakes at hand with Giannis and with this window that you have, who, is, and I, and yeah, Riley, I don't know who that coach is to take it from. Okay. We can at least get ourselves in position to who's going to take us there. Mm-hmm. And I don't know off the top of my, head. like I said, if it was possible, you throw as much money at Quinn Snyder or, or Rick Carlisle as possible, and that would be your guy. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's not going to ha- not going to happen. But I think that's kind of the maybe Boonholzer isn't the guy to get Milwaukee to make up that final twenty percent. And it's just a matter of who. I don't know who it's going to be. And but I also think with where you're at as a franchise, if you're going to take one last hurrah at it, we can talk about this. If the Bucks lose the series, if the Bucks come back and win the series, I'm still in the same boat. Mm-hmm, I'm still yeah. in the, you probably can't keep Boonholzer because what happens in the next series in games one and two, does Boonholzer completely revert back to, yeah, we got out of it back to plan A. And I'm just, I'm going to play nine guys, nine, 10 guys, and we're fine. That was just a weird blip. Like, does he do that? Or does he realize, oh, this actually works? And I'm gonna, like, that's where I don't know. And I don't feel confident that he would stick with it. If Milwaukee were to eat the series out, I don't think. I don't know if Boonholzer is going to stick with that or just say, okay, we got through this. We're back to square one. One more point. We're going long on this. So Adam, I'll defer to you in a second. I just feel like, you know, it would be really helpful if we had a guy on the court who was like a coach, you know, and like, maybe it was like a 50, 40, 90 guy. And like, what if, what if this guy could dribble, dribble, penetrate, like maybe his threes weren't super strong. What if a guy like, like a Malcolm Brogdon, for example. What if it's <laughs> we don't have to get into that? I'm just joking around. But it's I'm like <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna me and Kyle are gonna fist fight after this podcast. It's gonna drive the dogs the same. We don't have to get into that. I really don't think that's the solution. But Adam, what do you like we've kind of gone into our thoughts about Boonholes or what about you? Well the thing about uh well, the thing about Malcolm Brogdon, I'm glad you brought that. Up. <laughs> I mean, the one, the, the one, the one quick thing on that is, I mean, like all of us, we can all talk about how it's, it's the was supposed to be the committee, George Hill and Don DiVincenzo, but the real replacement for Malcolm Brogdon was more Chris Middleton, and we did mm-hmm. see a little bit of that in Game Four, right? He's yeah. the guy who can play at a superstar level. He stepped up to a superstar level. He play, he's getting paid, you know, thirty plus million, and everyone thought, oh, he played up to that contract this year. I would not have thought that last year. I think a lot of people would have been dubious of that. But he's yeah. played up to it. He's done more so. His game is tailor-made for when your offense sucks and you need a dude to just hit a really tough shot. 
Yeah. Granted, he went like 0 for 6 in the fourth quarter, but he had 21 in the third quarter. And they were all really tough shots. It's not like he was, you know, and it's not like he's a free throw, crazy free throw guy either. I mean, he took nine attempts yesterday on on 28 free throw attempts, which given how often they've been calling shooting fouls in this series, seems a little low um, to me personally. But, you know, Chris Middleton doesn't always go up for contact, so whatever. So that aside, the one thing I'll say about Bud is part of his system, and maybe it's what Miami's doing is just so good and like breaking the system, but one of the couple of like the really basic points that we said when Bud came in, which were low-hanging fruit, is like, okay, quit following your opponent uh, at Thon Maker levels, right? Quit doing that and putting them to the free throw line. Miami is going to the, has the highest free throw late rate in this series. It's like twenty eight point three percent in the regular season. Bucks opponents had eighteen point eight percent for mm-hmm. a free throw rate, right? So that's a simple thing the Bucks are not doing right, and I don't think that's on Bud. I think it's partially on the refs, but it's mostly on the players, right? It's about that over aggressiveness that we've been talking about. It doesn't take too much to not foul a three point shooter. Um, Second thing, we're going to defensive rebound like our lives depend on it. They aren't doing that. I don't think that's on Bud. I think it's a little bit on Miami's scheme for getting the Bucks out of position. But the Bucks have been doing that all year, and they're not doing that right now. Three, don't turn the ball over every single play. And they've been better at that the last two games. But these are just like, those are three fundamental things that are like, okay, any coach from fourth grade on would tell you to do that. But the Bucks weren't doing that under Jason Kidd. They were doing it under Bud, and the players are not doing that. And all of those marginal things all add up when your when your team when your fun, the main core function of your offense and defense isn't working like how it should. All of those marginal things have to go in your favor, and every single one of them right now is going to Miami by a pretty wide margin. Uh, and I would put a lot of that blame on the players uh, more so than Bud. And maybe he should have to adjust. But and there's all of lots of issues with Bud too. But those are just a few things that. I think it's very easy to blame Bud. There's a lot of stuff to blame Bud for. But those are a couple of things that I think the players fundamentally are not doing that he would say, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about that. Yeah. All, those are all good points. I thought about it, but at the same time, it's like, well, how much of that is on the coach? And I mean, the fouling, yeah, I can't blame Bud because he's not the one following the guys. The turnovers, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> The turnovers are a little bit different because it's like, well, how much of that is because of the scheme that you're running and maybe guys are trying to do too much or how much of it is your typical Eric Bledsoe, Giannis passing midair problems. And obviously they're going to have a couple of those be offensive fouls. Um, and the rebounding, that's been the baffling part. That's part of when we were saying, why is Robin Lopez not playing? Because you would think Robin Lopez, one thing he's really good at is boxing dudes out to give your other players rebounds. So maybe that could have been something that but yeah, I mean, like if you're failing at the three core principles, it, it, it comes down to the players. And that's on John Horse, which that's a whole different issue aside. Yeah, and yeah, totally. Y'all, y'all want to do a three hour podcast today? We got to- <laughs> <laughs> we have the whole off season. Hopefully, I think we've done a good job of diagnosing the series itself. But also anecdotally, like for rebounding, I there, I don't feel like there have been many examples of. Our, well, a lot of times this year, our guards are pretty good rebounders, right? We would see mm-hmm. Pat Conton, we'd see Dante, we'd see George Hill, Hill. Those guys would go up and get rebounds. Does not feel like they're winning those kind of rebounds this series much at all. Um, that's that's clearly an issue. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. you know what else sucks? What? The fact that the fact that fact that Giannis is an awful th- free throw shooter. That's horrendous. Oh, we that's we can't. 
that's not helping at all. He's leaving a lot of points at the table. And again, you kind of get into the start playing mental games with him. Like, is he then like shying away from playing his game because he doesn't want to go to the free throw line or like, I mean, he doesn't get calls a lot anyhow, so that doesn't help whatsoever. But like that's that's hurting as well. So I uh, just want a special shout out to Giannis being a bad free throw shooter most of the time. That's kind of difficult to correct. There's not much Budenholzer can do about that unless, <laughs> unless we're going to hire like our we're going to hire our thirtieth free throw free throw shooting coach. I mean, unless he's going to do that, there's not much he can do about that at this point. Well, that's what, yeah, game one, it was like, you couldn't put that on Bud if guys are turning the ball over and missing free throws, and that is the margin for when Milwaukee loses. It, it, for me, Boodles are needing to go was that fourth quarter in game three. That was kind of my, okay, I can't make any more excuses. I can't just overlook it. I can't just chalk it up to a weird chance. That's 100% on you. But... Yeah, free throws, Milwaukee missing a bunch of free throws game one did not help. And Giannis not being a good free throw shooter, even though this is why we can't push dudes to only be good three-point shooters, because that doesn't mean they're going to be good free throw shooters. All right, well, let's do one Let's do one last thing, because I, I don't want to yeah. give you guys back your Labor Day, too. One last thing, just how are you feeling then? Like, what did, what are you feeling like in terms of any level of hope for the rest of the series? Or are you just like, is there something you kind of just want to see? Like, I have to say, game four... It's sappy, but put me in a lot better mental state. Uh, just winning one game. I mean, it was crazy how much better I felt after winning one game. And it's a super short-term good feeling. It's going to be awful once we lose the series eventually, and then we have to stare down all these awful decisions. <laughs> but it's, it certainly put me in a better mental state. So, like, what, what what are you feeling in terms of the rest of the series? I feel game five, yeah, winning game four, at least pride-wise, made me feel good because you don't ever want to get swept. So... Winning a game, at least pride, it's at least better. I can now talk myself into, well, the Bucks could win game five and it goes to six. And shit, at this point, we don't know what's going to happen. You can get game six. You can steal it. I don't think they're going to win the whole series, but I can at least talk myself into, they can win game five. I do feel confident in the Bucks. Like, if you ask me, can the Bucks win game five? I would say I, I put it at 40% confidence. Yes. I don't know about winning game six and seven, but I feel better about game five than I would have felt in at like at, just because of the manner how they won it. I think all like without Giannis and all those guys rallying and getting that win, at, I feel better. Like I'm not confident they're winning the series, but I can at least feel like you can maybe steal game five as well, and then game six you get your doors blown off. Dude, I don't know. You guys, you guys are crazy, man. It, maybe it helps that I was somewhat detached from the series for the first two games. But, like, I mean, if we're not going to have Giannis or, like, a 50% Giannis in Game 5, I'm not super confident about that. I mean, even in, like, Game 4, we had to eke out the win in, in overtime. And so I'm not super confident if Giannis is even more in the next one. Um, I think having this win – I the one thing that I do feel confident is it was good to get the win in game four because I think it'll hopefully help temper. I, I would rather the team not make like a gut, like a, like a super rash. reactionary move, rash move, getting swept, which is what getting swept would lead. It's, it, you would be more led towards that. I think getting game one, if they, even if they take it to like the series to six or whatever, not great. Obviously that's way beneath expectations, but at least you can have a little bit more game film, have a little bit more of an idea like, okay, 
What are we working with here? Get a better idea of where we can move from here. So that I'm confident in. I don't think that maybe they'll win game five and take it to six. I don't think they're going to win the series. There's just too much in the first three games that we saw that was just not great unless Budenholzer really surprises and Giannis to get him the best PEDs in that ankle in the game. Maybe they have that in Orlando. I have no idea. But unless that's happening, we're not winning the series. I'm just happy, happy. I'm more pleased than I would have been, or at least conceptually, hopefully they can be a little bit more rational about things, having taken at least a game and you don't get swept and have the um, ignominity of that happening to you. So that's that's where I'm at. It's the most like net neutral, like don't trust the Bucks, like basic fan perspective to have, but that's where I'm at right now. Well, I think it also sets, it's good because it sets fan expectations for the off season to probably not be sweeping. I think even if they got swept, it probably wasn't going to be sweeping changes. It would be calls yeah. for sweeping changes, but yeah. I think this will temper people's expectations a little bit to be, to hopefully be a little bit more in line with what's actually feasible for this off season, which is Bud's probably not getting fired. And there's pro there's not a ton of moves that we can do. The Top one and always. yeah, the the only other thing I would say is that um, hopefully after this, you're right, Adam. I, I would, I mean, our owners is cheap as hell, so they're not going to pay uh, or his full salary if he's not working. But I hope this will kind of get them and Horse and whoever in the mode that like, depending on how the Giannis extension thing goes, like they need to be ready to start thinking of some other options in case like worse comes to worse. I don't even know. Like coaching changes mid season are usually a disaster unless it was like. Blatt and Ty Lue, which that was, that's a strange, I'm not sure if you can really replicate that necessarily because that was a LeBron squad and all that, but I just hope this will help widen the horizons and possibilities. And they're kind of constrained roster wise. We can talk about that in the off season. So there's just, they need to start thinking of more options because if it was like a Eastern Conference Finals and out, they might've been like, well, there's not really much that needs to be changed. It was just bad luck again. Um, so I think there are, as painful it is, positives to come away um, and I think it'll kind of bring everybody a little bit more down to earth where we can be a little bit more skeptical about regular season success, maybe two outs by Budenholzer that'll get him in the right mindset. We'll, we'll kind of just have to see. But I think if this was going to happen, I'd rather it happen in a more disastrous way so as to get everybody that in the front office and everything in the right mindset. So if we need to eject or whatever next season, then that's an option that they're more willing to go to than in otherwise. Yeah, it's, it's it's a lot easier to justify sweeping changes if the Bucks had been swept. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll have to see. Uh, I, if you had seen the look on Riley's face when uh, Kyle and I had hints of optimism, you would have. Uh, everyone would have been. I was waiting. Here. I was waiting for Kyle to be like, "I think they're going to still win the championship." That was going to be <laughs> the end of that. Not going that far. Not going that uh, far. If they win, they game four. <laughs> Hey, hey, I mean, we were all there when they were down 3-0 to the Bulls. And, I mean, I don't want to say I, I believe they were going to be the first team to pull off the 3-0. <laughs> Game six, I, I couldn't even work that day. I was so jacked up. Um, we'll, we'll know a week from a week from today when we record whether or not our, all our wildest dreams came true or not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, well, let's take a quick ad break and then let's get out on some, some lighthearted fare. So stay tuned. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. 
With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to Cars.com. It's magical. All right, we're back. All right, guys, let's do a little. I, I wrote some rapid fire questions for you. They're real quick. They're sort of Labor Day themed. Thankfully, you'll be listening to this post Labor Day. So if you people are interested, um, you can do uh, you can use the advice that you get from this uh, this series of questions that are Labor Day picnic related to uh, to to guide your menu for next weekend when all the buns and hot dogs are half off and about to expire. All right. First question. Are you a shake or a malt guy? Malt. Shake. Team shake. Whoa. 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 Bitter. Bitter <laughs> combatants there. All right. Um, what's your favorite type of French fry? That's a really good question. My dog is barking in the background, which is why I keep meeting myself. So if you hear that, sorry about that. Uh, favorite kind of French fry? McDonald's. I know it's like the typical typical go-to, but that if you get a good set of McDonald's fries, it's tough to top that. I don't know. Is that like shoestring technically? I think that's what it's called. I think I'm a shoestring guy personally. And when I think about it, I'm going to go with waffle fries. I, I think if I had a choice of, like if I'm at a restaurant and they give me a list of fries, I'm going waffle. Do you like sweet potato at all? I don't mind it, but like if it's an, if it's the only option I have, I will eat it with no problem. But I'm not. <laughs> I don't love it. <laughs> yeah, I feel like sweet potato fries always get hyped up, and they're they're, they're just okay. They feel very meaty to me. Yeah, um, but i I like the I like the waffle fry taste. I just don't know what you dip sweet potato fries in. That's my problem. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, next one. Hot dog or brat? Brat. Brat. If you get a good brat, I'm not a huge beer battered or like you cook it in the beer. I'm not a huge fan of that, but a straight up brat, that's why I'm going to go for a hot dog all day. You kraut people? I'll throw it out. Yeah, I'm, I'm cool with kraut. I'm cool with that or onion, a little mustard. You can't, can't go wrong on all that. All right. Last one to finish out your picnic. Preferred chip? Flavor of chip? I would yeah, say, yeah, yeah I, it's it's really tough. If I'm picnicking, I almost always go, sorry, my dog's going to join us for the rest of the broadcast here, so he's just hanging out on the screen for those. <laughs> Everybody can go watch the YouTube broadcast to see him. Um, I would say I'd go for just straightforward, plain Lay's. Like, I know that's a real basic, but when you have, like, a brat or a hamburger or something, nothing better than a straight-up Lay's. I like a sour cream and onion as well, but it's tough to mess up with the classic, so... Yeah, Lay's Classic or Cool Ranch Doritos would be one of those two. Perfect. Okay, so if you're if you're having Kyle and Riley over, have a shake or a malt ready, some shoestring fries and waffle fries. <laughs> Thankfully, they both like brats, so you don't have to spend as much there. <laughs> and then uh, you can get regular Lay's as well. It sounds like you'll be okay. Yeah. Perfect. All right, well, that's fun. Uh, next thing, the return of the, the fountain pen review. Yeah, so this week I have a couple of items I want to show you guys. So I don't have, I, I'm pretty much out of fountain pens, and I keep forgetting the last one I have to review back at work, which is fine. It's like a $10 one. Two things I want to show you guys this week. One, 
Check this bad boy out. This is called a panel book. It's long as hell. The way that it's designed is specifically for office and desk use. It's exactly as long as my Mac or like your typical laptop. The paper, highest quality in the game you can get. It's I think it's 20 bucks for the whole set. It's like 100 sheets. You can either do landscape or portrait, whatever you want to do. Awesome paper is what I got used here in the office setup. Second thing I want to show, it's my Joy Sepia. Uh, here, where's my camera? So this is from Monteverde, which is, they are almost exclusively fountain pen inks. This is from their Emotion series. Um, it doesn't look that sexy because it's like a weird orangey brown. Uh, I'm not sure if you can see like the smiley face. Here, where is it? It's really cute, kind of, yeah. I guess. Yeah, kind of sort of. I don't have an example. Some people will be like, oh, that's kind of plain Jane. That's kind of boring, like that orangey brown. I would generally agree, but it looks really good in like the fall if you're looking for that kind. And it's very, especially on a cream paper, very easy on the eyes. It sets kind of dark and lightens up. It's got a lot of character to it. So um, if you're looking for brown inks, I know that doesn't sound like the first option you would go for, but uh, something like a Joy Sepia is kind of in between. You don't have to get too crazy, too brown. You kind of get a little bit of color going with it. So, I mean, it's a little bottle. I mean, I think this cost me like, six dollars or something like that so pretty cheap all things considered for what you're getting so joy sepia from monteverde is uh this week's suggested item love it i love the fall theme as we're as we're saying au revoir to summer we finally get a nice fall ink to try out <laughs> all right last thing guys how many games is this series gonna go what are your predictions what do you got kyle ah <laughs> uh... They're going to win game five, get my holds back up, and lose in brutal fashion game six. And I'm going <laughs> to hate it. I'm going to absolutely hate it. It's going to set the tone. They're, yeah, it'll go to six and they're going to lose. And I'm going to be like, why the hell did I waste all my effort? Get talking about it. Like, I'm going to spend Wednesday and Thursday morning. Like, yes, here we go. We can do this. We're this close. And they're going to lose. Lose in six. I'm hopeful, so even though I just got done talking trash, I'm hopeful that the fates will align. We will get to a game seven. We'll get it to Saturday, and it's going to make recording on Sunday either the greatest experience or the most heartbreaking. So for the content, for the fan experience, and also when you think about it, I mean, we saw this team win a lot of games against a lot of good teams. It wouldn't be unrealistic, you would think. It, now, the honest injury, that throws a loop in it, but would it be the craziest thing ever for this team to win four straight? I don't know. You say, and especially in like the bubble and no home court advantage for us or them, like it, crazier things have happened, guys, in sports. So uh, I think maybe we'll take it to game seven, whether or not we win or lose this kind of, I have no idea. It would be crazy if that's what happened in this whole podcast. You might as well flush it down the drain because we're going to have everybody's going to be like, that's it. We're the greatest team of all time. <laughs> uh, but I think we will take it to seven games for the narrative. Wow. I love it. I'm seeing six. I'm seeing game five. We're due for like a hot three-point shooting game. We had one earlier in the series, but we've been kind of down. I think Miami, I mean, they're on their heels right now. Uh, after that. <laughs> yeah, that yeah that they are. Sure they are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, then I'm kind of with Kyle that I think it just gets crushed in six. I mean, if they take it to seven, you can see the narrative where Bucks shoot hot from three in game five. Giannis comes back for game six, the triumphant return. Game seven, we lose by 50. I mean, and that's boring, <laughs> right? We're used to that. Um, that's true. That was the most brutal way for that series against the Bulls then. It was like, everybody was like, this might happen. And then we just get blown out in the final game. Uh, 
Yeah, all I ask is when the Bucks lose, just put me on my misery early. Do not make mm-hmm. it a heartbreaking. Don't give me a Kawhi Leonard situation where you hit this like impossible shot to lose. Don't give me that. Just like do do what the Bulls did. Kill it off early. Be down like thirty by halftime. Then I can just throw sad tweets on the Brew Hoop account, and you know, mm-hmm. by the time the game ends, I'm done. <laughs> just let me. Just put me out my misery early. Do not. Just yeah. Pull the plug. Pull the plug. Pull the plug. Let's pull the plug on this podcast, guys. It's, it's the 2019-2020 Bucks season. Pull the plug. <laughs> it's been great to get back together. Uh, we'll have to see by the time most people are listening to this, it'll be game day for, for game five, so we'll hope and figure out what the outcome is. Um, in the meantime, definitely go to brewhoop.com for all of our typical content, breaking down the games. If the season ends, we'll obviously have tons of questions, postseason stuff to ponder. So stay, stay tuned to brewhoop.com. Uh, there's also obviously articles on the site about what you can do in regards to the inaction within the Wisconsin state legislature uh, to try and finally um, have them get around to doing almost anything uh, that would be helpful and useful to um, society. So definitely go to brewhoop.com for that. And uh, in the meantime, we'll talk to you again soon. <laughs>